God, as we lean into this season of Thanksgiving, God, we just say thank you for being so good to us. Our greatest gift these days, God, is you, your kindness and your grace and your mercy to us. Holy Spirit, we thank you for hosting us in this place with your presence. God, we thank you for your goodness to us this morning. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. You may be seated. It's good to see you guys all this morning. Fun to have you. Uh, If you're new visiting Wellspring, my name is Tony. I am glad you're here today. Uh, If you are a kid and want to hang out with some other kids, uh, Miss Jeannie is back there, and she wants to hang out with you too. So feel free to... Well, we got runners, man. They're excited this morning. I like that. So what we're doing in this season is we're looking at what does it look like to practice the way of Jesus, right? So sometimes when we come into church, we're thinking about what does it look like to believe in Jesus? And that's obviously important, but we want to learn in this season, what does it look like to model our lives after Jesus's example, So we've been sort of leaning into and looking at all kinds of ways to do that. We've looked at Sabbath rest. We've looked at what does it look like to have the scriptures be a part of our lives. We've looked at uh, hospitality, which we'll look at in a minute, actually. We've looked at generosity. We've looked at all kinds of things. Today, we're going to look at this practice of hospitality. Now, what I want to do as we start this morning is I want to give us a little bit of an exercise to try. So I I want you to answer this question. In the Bible... Uh, In the Gospels in particular, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, these words, Jesus came to, is answered three different ways. I want you to turn to the person next to you, and if there's a a single person next to you, bring them in, uh, and I want you to talk to that person next to you or that little group next to you. How do you answer this question? Jesus came to, specifically, in a sentence, this is answered three different ways in in the Gospels. Okay, turn to the person next to you, maybe you say hi, maybe your name, but then get into the business of how do we answer this question. All right, now that you're having so much fun, I'm going to bring you back to the business of this sermon. All right. Jesus came to, right? And if I was on a show, I'd say the survey says, right? So this is the first one. This is from Mark 10, 45. The Son of Man, Jesus, came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many, right? Jesus came to serve, Who got that one? 
Man. All right. Oh, we got one. Yeah, yes. You win the rice cooker or whatever it is. Yeah. All right. Number two. The Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. Who got that one? Oh, that one was way higher. Okay, I like it. All right, number three. This is, this is the big money ticket. The Son of Man came eating and drinking. Who got that one? Well, nice. Carl, I love it. Yeah, so I read these and I'm like, okay, to serve. We see that. Like, he came to serve, right? He offers himself in this awesome servant posture. posture. Love it, right? Seek and save the lost. If you're familiar with the Gospels, you're like, yes. And then you get to number three and you're like, what? Like, I love myself a good falafel too, but I don't know if that's why Jesus left heaven, right, to come to earth. So what's going on here? What is going on? Well, I think one of the things, if we sort of just think about, can you recall a time that you were hosted? You were welcomed in to someone's family. Maybe it was with family, maybe it was a coworker, maybe it was a friend. You remember that feeling you had of being welcomed into someone's table or their life? I see, food has never just been about calories. Food has also been a way, always been a way to welcome people in. I remember when we first moved down here, we were up in Washington, relocated our whole lives to come down here and do this replant in this place. And the house we were living into is in like massive remodel. So there was no kitchen. Uh, there was hardly a bathroom. I remember one day Jeannie's like, hey, can you close the windows? The wind is blowing through the house. And I was like, Jeannie, we don't have a back wall to our house. The windows are going to make no difference. (laughs) And in that first six-week period that we were here, we made six meals for dinner. Every other night for the first six weeks we were on the ground in this place, people welcomed us in. And you know, when you give up family, you give up friendships, and you move into a new place, being welcomed in via food is like saying, hey, we want you here. And if you've ever experienced that personally, you know what that is like, especially when you're vulnerable, when you're on the outside of a community, what it feels like to be welcomed in. I think this is one of the reasons Paul tells the Romans to practice hospitality. Right, that's Romans 12, 13. In 1 Peter, he says this, Be hospitable with one another without complaint. Now, both these words, hospitable in both these contexts, is this particular Greek word called philozenia. Now, if you don't know Greek, I'm going to project it up here just so you can uh, take, a, take a whirl at it. Now, you might not know what that means. I'm going to break it out for you a little bit. So this is two words. Now, this is philo and xenia. Now, you might note a word named xenophobia. That is fear of strangers. This word is philo, xenia, meaning love of strangers. So, what we see here is that both Paul and Peter are saying, hey, 
practice loving strangers. Practice loving outsiders. This is not have your best friend over. When they're saying, hey, practice hospitality, they're not saying invite the people you like over that you just like always meet up on Thursday nights. This is invite the person who is on the outside in. Now, and they didn't just come up with this. It wasn't like, you know what? I think you guys should try this, you know? No, no, this is based in Jesus' ministry, right? So Jesus was constantly inviting the outsider in, right? And Paul and Peter are trying to practice the way of Jesus, just like we're trying to. So they said, hey, Jesus did this. We're trying to do this. Hey, churches, right? In modern-day Turkey, churches in Rome, you guys should do this too. You should practice hospitality. You see, Jesus, when he was in the first century, right, there was all these rigid social relationships, right? So you weren't supposed to have dinner with the person who was really low social standing. You weren't supposed to have dinner with the person who had questionable character, right? The sinner, the prostitute, the tax collector. You're not supposed to eat with them because eat, eating with another person is to some would say to welcome them in. No, you're not supposed to welcome those people in. And yet, When we look at the life of Jesus, Jesus does this so much that this is what people say of him. Look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Jesus is meeting with, hanging out with, being in the homes of people that the the religious leaders of the time are like, no, no, you can't do that. And he's like, "Ah, actually, I can. And he does it so much that people call him a drunkard. In Mark 2, there's this great story. The Pharisees and the scribes, they're upset that Jesus is doing this. He's like, you're a religious leader. You can't do this. And he replies to their question. They ask Jesus' disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said to them, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. You see, in the first century, there was these rigid barriers between, yeah, God doesn't really like these people. So we hang out with ourselves because God likes us. But these people that God doesn't like, we, we don't like them either. And we put them over to the side. And Jesus is like, no, 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 you guys are missing the point. God is actually calling these people, all of you, the good, the bad, the righteous, the unrighteous, the sinner and the holy, right, to himself. There's this great story in Luke 15. Again, the Pharisees and tax collector, or the, the Pharisees and the scribes that are upset. Because what happens is, and this is how uh, chapter 15 begins. Now the tax collectors and the sinners were all drawing near to him, right? So all these people are like, whoa, he welcomes us in. We're going, right? They're drawing near to Jesus. They want to be around him because he hangs out with them. And then verse 2, and the Pharisees and the scribes, they grumbled, you know, muttering. We've muttered once or twice, probably, all of us. This man receives sinners and eats with them. He welcomes the men. Now, to this, Jesus gives three parables, three stories. So they're grumbling. He knows their comments, and then he says three stories, and they all build on each other. The first one is of a shepherd who loses a sheep. And he's like, what shepherd wouldn't go and find that sheep? He'd leave behind the 99, he'd go find that sheep lost in the hills, and he'd bring it back. And then what does he do? He throws a party. 
right? They gather around, they have food, they invite the village, and they celebrate. He's like, this is what the kingdom of God is like. And then he gives a, a parable about a woman who loses a coin and it falls in the cracks of the, the, the stone floor, right? And she has to search for it and she picks it up. And what does she do? She gathers everyone around and what does she do? She throws a party. And then building on these two tells another story of a father and two sons. And one of the sons, he decides... I want my inheritance now, and he takes it, and then he squanders it. And the text says, like, something like loose living, right? He's just not super responsible. And a famine hits, and he gets in worse and worse situation. And then eventually, he's like, man, I cannot hack this anymore, right? He's a Hebrew boy eating the food of pigs. And he starts to come back. But in the first century, there's a ceremony. Some of you are familiar with this. It's called a kazaza ceremony. And boys who squandered their inheritance, based inheritance, when they come back, there's a disincentive to squandering your inheritance because the, the men of the town would meet you at the, the border of your village and they would either beat or stone you or something just to say to every young Hebrew boy, don't do this. And the boy's walking back and his dad sees him from a long way off, and he has compassion on him. And then he does something that no first century Middle Eastern men ever do. He runs. See, running as a first century man is like a super no-no. You're supposed to be stately, right? You're supposed to wait back on your chair and wait for your son to come in, sort of beat up by the people at the kazaza ceremony, and you're supposed to wait for him to come and bow at your feet, right? Moms maybe have the permission to run. Dads don't. So what happens is the dad runs through the town, and as he runs through the town, everyone starts to look at him and stops looking at the boy so they don't do the kazaza ceremony because now they're gossiping about the running dad, And what does he do? He hugs him, he puts a ring on his finger, and then what does he do? He throws a party. In all of these instances, Jesus is answering the Pharisees, why do you eat with people that are not close to God? And he says, oh, this is what the kingdom of God is all about. This is what the heart of God is all about. It's like a father who runs through town to welcome in his son. It's like a, a woman who loses a coin. It's like a shepherd who loses or finds a lost sheep, right? And what do we do? We throw a party. We eat food together and we celebrate. The stories keep going, though. There's this great story uh, a few chapters later in Luke with this guy named Zacchaeus, right? He's a tax collector, tax collector. And what that means is he's basically working for the Romans, now, this is high political, you know, in the very least, this is like political betrayal. Uh, in, the very, in the most, right, this could be like absolute betrayal and now extortion. And he invites Jesus over. And Jesus says, oh, yeah, sure, I'll come over to your house. And again, what do they do, right? They grumble. Like the Pharisees are always grumbling. But then what happens is Zacchaeus says this, and it won't be projected, but just so you know, he says, Behold, Lord, half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I had defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it full, fourfold. And this is how Jesus replies. Today, salvation has come into this house. 
Salvation comes into the house through hospitality, through this willingness of Jesus to break fruit with people that other people weren't willing to hang out with, right? The outsider, Jesus, hangs out, and what happens? Salvation comes to this house. There's a guy named Jeff Vanderstelt in this book, Saturate. He says this, God doesn't want us to feast or celebrate as his people. Doesn't just want us to feast or celebrate as his people. He wants us to remember him keeping him central to the party by showing kindness, love, and mercy to all those who lack a reason to celebrate. If you look at the life of Jesus, you look at the early church, you look at the teaching of Paul and of Peter, I think it is inescapable that hospitality, the love of the outsider, is a central practice and yet, like if you look at the first century context, it's a little different, right? So Jesus is trying to break down social barriers, right? So in his context, uh, he's like, yeah, the prostitute, the sinner, these people that would be, that, you know, they're not really atheists, right? We're not dealing with secular context. We're dealing with people that are socially excluded for various reasons. And Jesus is saying, no, 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 the grace and love of God is for all of you. In our context, it's a little different, right? We're in a secular context, Barna said, uh, in a study that this area where we live is the 21st most unchurched and least Christian place in the United States, ahead of New York City, ahead of Portland, ahead of LA, all these places, right? This is the Monterey Bay. And yet, and yet I think hospitality is as pivotal in our moment as it was in Jesus's. And this is true for a number of reasons. I just kind of want to tease them out for a second. First is this, I think it honors the process of coming to faith. So often we sort of are trained, I think, in the church to think in terms of bounded set. So bounded set is uh, a particular way of looking at life with God, right? So you're either in or you're out, right? So in terms of like the process of coming to faith, what that often means is make a decision now, right? Be in, choose Jesus. And there's a lot of truth to this. I would say, though, a more helpful frame is centered set, and I'll explain in a few minutes why. Centered set is essentially Jesus and his kingdom are in the center, and the question is, are you moving closer, or are you moving further away? And there is a threshold moment, right, when you fully surrender your life to Jesus, but what this does is it honors what that process and trajectory looks like. There's this guy named Engel, and he has this thing called a scale, the Engel scale. It's used a lot in evangelism. Uh, I don't know if you can read this, but basically he says, you know, actually point 10 on this 15 point scale is when you actually surrender. So that means there are nine steps before someone gets to that bounded set in or out. Now, I don't know about you, but when I am on my street and hanging out with coworkers, well, not coworkers for me, but for you probably, my coworkers, praise the Lord, they all know Jesus. But like most of the people I know that would never go to church are at point two or three. Maybe they have some awareness of God. And actually, we're just at this point of having contact with Christians. And the, what this does is it shows that this journey towards Jesus as a centered set approach is multiple steps, right? Some awareness is point two. Contact with Christians is point three. Interest in Jesus, point four. Right? Like, 
Acceptance of Christian truth is eight, right? Acceptance of the implications is nine. Decision to surrender is ten. The point is, if someone is going to accept and embrace Jesus, they need a process. You know what an amazing part of that is? Having people over to dinner. For a lot of reasons. One is, having someone into your house is a great way to undermine the judgment that often people have of Christians in the church. Right? Barna says that, uh, I think it's like 87, or when they surveyed people who didn't want to go to church, one of the reasons they said was 87%, 87% of the people who were surveyed said that the church and Christians are judgmental. Right? You maybe run into this. And part of this operates because we operate in these information silos. So the way you're getting information, you're just getting bombarded. Like, especially if you're not a churchgoer, you're just getting bombarded with every church scandal, every pastor who does something horrible, every, like, thing that the church does poorly. You're hearing about it. And so many people have never met a Christian who is humble, who's trying to seek Jesus, and really God has transformed their life. Hospitality starts to undermine these assumptions, and this judgment. Rosaria Butterfield writes in radical, Radically Ordinary Hospitality, Practically, practicing radically ordinary hospitality in your, is your street credibility with your post-Christian neighbors. It allows you to listen, to keep secrets, to be a safe friend, and to speak a word of grace in dark places. In post-Christian communities, your words can only be as strong as your relationships. Your best weapon is an open door, a set table, a fresh pot of coffee, a box of Kleenex for all the tears that spill. Too often as Christians, we're wanting to get into this like debate about ideas and so often, we're jumping ahead to trying to get someone to say, embrace Jesus as your Lord and Savior, but we actually haven't done the footwork of welcoming them into our homes. Loving them. I think another thing, another reason hospitality I think is so central is it's a place of storytelling. Who has been invited over to someone's house, Right? And one of the first things, let's say you're a couple, there, someone is going to say, how did you guys meet? Or why did you choose to go to CSUMB over somewhere else? Why did you choose to join the military? Right? Why did you choose to be in your vocation or your job? Why, when you retired, did you move to Pacific Grove? Right? We are getting softballs Underhand, softballs, slow pitch, t-balls, I don't know how you want to say it. These opportunities to tell stories about how God is actually real in our everyday life. Most people at the church assume you go to church because you believe certain things. But it's totally disconnected from how that actually shapes your everyday discipleship. So we have this awesome opportunity over meal to say, Oh, why did you marry your spouse? What was the role God had to play in that? Why did you join the military? Why did you go to CSUMB? What did God have to say to you that led you to that decision? And some of us, this might be uncomfortable because now what we actually have to do is connect God to what we're doing in our everyday life. 
And we can't just say, hey, it's just about beliefs on Sunday morning. No, God shapes everything we do. But we have to become storytellers. Because one of the things about a postmodern environment is stories cannot be argued in the same way that ideas can. Like, you can tell a story and someone will be like, oh, that's your story. I'll listen to it. If you try and tell them, this is the truth about the world, they'd be like, whoa, back off, buddy, you know? But stories have a power. Hospitality also is one of the few places where someone who never goes to church expects you, if you are a churchgoer, to pray. Now, full disclosure, for a long time, I really resisted prayer over meals because I didn't grow up in the church. And when I sort of went to Christian houses, I felt like it was just sort of like an obligation. Like people were just like, thank you, Jesus, for the food. Amen. Okay, can we get to the real part of this meeting, you know? I think I'm fundamentally changing my perspective on this for a few reasons. One, what we see from a biblical perspective is that food is ultimately points to God as provider and the presence of God being there. Go to the book of Exodus. What is the manna, right? What is the manna signal? God rescues his people from Egypt, and then what does he do? He provides, because they don't have food. They don't have an agricultural system that they can sort of harvest from. What What does he do? He provides for them, and is through that provision illustrates his presence to them. And over prayer, we have a profound opportunity to say, God, thank you so much for providing for us today. Jesus says, right? Pray for your daily bread. Prayer over meals, a profound opportunity to say, thank you, God, for being here with us. Two, it's a signal of God's presence. There's this great story in Luke 24 where the, this is right after Jesus has been killed. Some of his disciples are losing hope. They're going to walk home. And Jesus meets them incognito on the way. They don't recognize him. They invite him in to break bread together, to eat together. And it's as they break bread, as they eat food together, that Jesus reveals himself to them. And I think we have this awesome opportunity to actually pray as we're welcoming people, loving strangers and outsiders, people who would never go into this place. We have this incredible opportunity to have actually offer a prayer where we say, you know, I don't trust in my money. I trust in God. God is my provider. And we have an opportunity to actually pray for the presence of God to show up at our meal. And yet, we don't want to be socially awkward. We don't want to mess with anyone. We don't want anyone to feel uncomfortable. And yet, I think most people, if they know you go to church, are not upset if you pray. We have this awesome opportunity. I also think there's a profound opportunity to model grace over hospitality. Because if you've hosted people enough, you know things always go wrong. You burn food. Your kids won't eat. They scream. Uh, whatever, like I could go through a gamut of illustrations. And we have an opportunity in that moment to be entertainers or hosts, right? So in that moment, you have a choice. Are you going to be an entertainer? So an entertainer is primarily concerned with being Martha Stewart, right? Of curating perfection. Our kids obey us, right? Like our kids obey us. 
My food is amazing. My decor is great. Hosts welcome people into their life. And we have an opportunity to model grace when the food is burnt and you turn to your husband and you're like, why weren't you more attentive? Or our kids aren't listening and we can get upset. We can model grace to them and say, hey, you know, we love you. Please listen, you know. <laughs> but we have a real opportunity to model grace. There's this guy named Sam Chan. He's an evangelist. He wrote a book on evangelism in a skeptical world. And he says, and won't be projected, hospitality shows that the gospel is real. I believe, this is what he writes, I believe one of the most powerful proclamations of the gospel is the family meal in a Christian family. This is an evangelist. This guy isn't saying, hey, what you really should be doing is being on straight corners and handing out tracts. What he's saying is what you really should be doing in a post-Christian skeptical world is inviting people into your house and your life. Why? Because we get to model grace. We get to pray. We get to share stories. Right? We get to undermine a lot of the judgment. And we get to adjust plausibility structures. Now you're like, I didn't study philosophy. Well, let me explain. Plausibility structures are essentially what do we believe is possible? That's basically all it is. Sam Chan writes this in his book. The gospel might be true, but to most non-Christians, it sounds unbelievable. And the gospel will remain unbelievable as long as our non-Christian friends don't have many Christian friends because we tend to adopt the plausibility structures of those we know and trust. The point is, if we aren't sharing stories, if we aren't modeling grace, if we aren't praying, if we aren't inviting people into our home, we actually don't give the people in our life an opportunity to believe something different than they already believe. And we actually model an alternative view of reality through hospitality. Now, you might be standing here like, Okay, Tony, you've convinced me, I get it, but I'm still not going to have anyone over, right? Because life is busy. My life is busy. Things can go wrong, right? Hosting people, and you're like, I do not want things to go wrong. I'll tell you a couple stories of things going wrong. When I was a, a young boy, I remember our family had some people over, and it was just part of our culture in my family, and... Um, there was this moment, we had a bunch of my dad's friends over, and one of the friends left during the meal, and he was gone for like 30 minutes, and people started to worry, right? So we went over to the bathroom, kind of knocked on it, and no reply. And we're like, well, what's going on here? And I, I, you know, I was in elementary school, so I didn't totally get what was going on, but people were afraid that he had died, right? So they, he's in the bathroom, they start taking off the door. They get the door fully off. Everyone, all 20 of us that were at the table are crowded by the door. And just as they get the door up, he goes, hey. And he woke up. <laughs> Things can go terribly wrong through hospitality. <laughs> One time, I, uh, we were in Washington and it was the first time we'd ever had a garage that you could pull the car in. And so someone invited us over. I brought the broccoli, and I was excited. I hopped right in the car, drove over to those people's houses. 
started to get out of the car and realized I had no shoes on. <laughs> right? Because I never went outside the house. Like, if I had gone outside the house, I would have, like, clicked in my brain. But since we had, a dry, like, a car in the, in the garage, it just never clicked I should put shoes on. So I got right in the car, showed up at their house barefoot, and here we go. But at least I brought the broccoli. <laughs> now, the point of these stories is that, yeah, it's not always going to go right. Funny things are going to happen. But the truth is, like, if you actually look at the Gospels, there's lots of times Jesus is invited over to people's houses and things don't go right. There's this great story in Luke 7. Uh, this Pharisee invites Jesus over. And the Pharisee, I'm sure, had a plan for how he wanted the event to go. Within a short amount of time, a, the text says a sinful woman or a woman in a sort of living a sinful life shows up. And she goes at Jesus' feet and she just starts weeping. And she's washing his feet with her tears and drying it with her hair. And this is like an ugly cry, right? This is not like pretty. And then she breaks out this ointment and starts anointing his feet. And immediately the Pharisee is like, what is happening? This is not what I planned. This is not what I wanted. And yet it is through this really uncomfortable social moment, I would imagine, that Jesus starts to talk about forgiveness and love. Sometimes it's actually those very moments when we're hosting and things go off that we actually have an opportunity to experience the grace and mercy of God. Now, I want to give a couple tips just on the practical side of like, so how do I do this? How do I host in such a way that like, I don't know, kind of makes sense that I can do it, All right? Tip one is this. Focus on invitation, not acceptance. I think one of the things for us is we get sort of all like socially and emotionally like bent out of shape if someone says no. And it's like, no, 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 no. We are meant to be inviters. We cannot control what people say, but we should be, I think, inviting coworkers, neighbors, uh, people on our street, people that maybe would never come to church into our homes. We got to focus on acceptance or on an invitation, not acceptance. Two, I would say this, cook something you have cooked before and you like. I think one of the problems is we get into hospitality and we're like, all right, I saw this awesome recipe. It takes three hours. And now we're just like, you're so focused on cooking the food and not messing it up that you forget that the whole reason the people are there is to welcome them in. Ideally, cook something you've cooked before that has a story. Three, focus on people, ask questions, it is so easy in the midst of hospitality to get focused on decor and your food and whether the kids are behaving or whatever, whether you're a good chef and whether people will like your food or whether you salted it too much or whatever, whether Costco had a good marinade. The point is people, right? That's why Jesus ate with people. You notice, like, in none of the gospel accounts do they go through all the spread they have on the table, but I'm sure the spread was amazing. It's always about people. I also think we should just pray for God's presence. Right? This isn't simply like, you know, thank you God for this food, amen. This is, God, show up tonight. 
God, be with us. And maybe God does something that we can't control. But that's what we believe, right? That in the end, it is not by our cleverness, it is not by our ability, but by God's grace that people come to know him. And we have an opportunity over dinner to just pray that God would show up in cool ways. And then we just enjoy the people we're with and see what God does. I also think, you know, this gets back to before, model grace, not perfection. Our goal is not entertainment. Our goal is hospitality. Let's be gracious to one another. And lastly, just a word to introverts. Just because I think hospitality can be one of those things where you're just like, I have to have people over into my house. Like, and I would say this, you got to steward your energy. Again, Rosaria Butterfield has this great quote. She says this, as an introvert. We introverts miss out on great blessing when we excuse ourselves from practicing hospitality because it exhausts us. I often find people exhausting, true enough. But over the years, I've learned how to pace myself, how to prepare for the private time necessary to recharge, how to grow in discomfort. Knowing your personality and your sensitivities doesn't excuse you from ministry. It means that you need to prepare for it differently than others might. And there's truth in that. If you're always extroverted and you just get energy from people, you might have people over all the time. My guess is, though, like very few couples I know, both people are raging extroverts, right? So now you're like in this like dance with your spouse about how often to have people over. If you're single, right? If you're not, whatever. We need to pay attention to our own abilities, how God designed us, but it doesn't mean that we shouldn't embrace hospitality. Maybe the frequency changes. One of the things I think that's amazing about hospitality is like, no matter your age or stage, it can be practiced. What it looks like might change. But whether you're 15 and you're at high school, you can invite people to hang out with you over food. If you're at CSUMB, right, whether you're uh, on the sort of meal plan or not, you can hang out with people over food. Whether you have little kids running around and screaming, whether you're retired, at any age or stage, we can be with people over food. And I think also just in a divided world, like our world, I think all of us know this, like it is such a divided place. Politically, faith-wise, there are so many things that divide us. The thing about human beings is we all need to eat. And I think the church can be a prophetic witness to a divided world. Hey guys, through Jesus, there is a possibility for unity. We can be a prophetic witness into a divided world about God's heart for people. We can embody the welcome of God. And one of the things, like no matter where you are in your journey, right? When you watch the centered set thing or you saw the Engel scale, maybe you're like, well, I'm number two wherever you are. Like one of the reasons after service, every time we gather on Sunday, we have this big table out there and we put food on it. And this, I think, is a living symbol and a living sacrament that God's table welcomes all of us. And that Jesus isn't here this morning for you with some sort of litmus test of whether or not you believe enough. 
God wants you to draw closer. Whether you're bored or don't like coming or taken here by your parents and wish you weren't, God is saying to you, come to the table. And that's why we have this food out every Sunday as a living witness to you and to me that we are all welcome. I want to invite the worship team up. They're going to lead us into worship. And I want to do is just create a little bit of space at this moment for God to nudge us. I just want to create a little bit of space in prayer for maybe God just to reveal our heart to us. Specifically, I want to sort of pray about two things. What gets in the way for you of hosting people? What is it that gets in the way? Is it just time? Is it priorities? Is it people will see your dirty house or taste your terrible food? Like what is, what is it that gets in the way? We have this incredible opportunity to befriend people that would never come on a Sunday morning and invite them into the sacred space of our homes. What is it that gets in the way for you? I just invite you just to lay that at the feet of Jesus. We are all here today because Jesus welcomed us. Jesus extended his hand to you and to me, not because we had our act together, not because we filled out the right faith form, but because he loves us. And he wanted to sit and eat with us and be with us and spend time with us. And he sends us into the world to do the same for others. What gets in the way? And I want us to also just pay attention as we sort of are in this posture of prayer is there someone that God wants you to invite in? Maybe God will just bring a face to your mind. Maybe it's a coworker or someone in your kid's school, parents there. Maybe it's someone on your block. I just invite you just to listen. The Spirit speaks. God loves these people desperately. Who does God want you to welcome in. The Holy Spirit is in a mission in this world, drawing people to himself. Who is he inviting you to invite into his presence. 
as we enter worship, I just invite you just to talk with God, be with God. The Spirit is here. I just invite you to stand as we enter worship.